0: Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.
1: Fatigue is really the number one symptom across the board, just ongoing fatigue. And then brain fog is another one, which is just inflammation of the brain. Pain tends to increase in these patients. So they'll have ongoing pain syndromes. They'll have brain issues like memory, inability to recall, impaired learning, things like that. And then they might have some cardiovascular issues because the heart's inflamed. So there might be some heart arrhythmias, POTS, which is just basically a problem with the heart from lying down to standing, skin issues, autoimmunity, loss of muscle mass. There's many men over 60 symptoms now. Some people will just have one ongoing symptom for a long time. They might just be more tired for a year or longer. I mean, that's considered long COVID. A lot of the women have their menstrual cycles have just completely flipped, completely changed. And uh, sleep issues are also another big one. Some patients might just have ongoing sleep issues and they might just chalk it up to the daily stresses of life and things like that. So it's definitely you know not something to overlook even if you just have one symptom that's ongoing.
0: Hello, hello, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I talk with Dr. Nick Hedberg all about the latest research and what he's personally seen in practice treating patients with long COVID. It turns out you can develop long COVID from either the virus itself or from the vaccine. Dr. Nick and I dive into the symptoms, latest literature, testing, and treatment options available. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about an easy health habit that I use every single day, and that's AG1 by Athletic Greens. With one delicious scoop of AG1, I get 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help support my gut, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, all the things. It also comes in super convenient travel packs, which is so nice because I'm often on the go. I love that you can use it if you eat keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. And it contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, and to me, tastes pretty good. I call it a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing I do every single day to take great care of myself, and you can do. Right now, Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Root Cause to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This podcast is created by Rupa Health, the best and easiest place for practitioners to order, track, and manage all your labs in one convenient location. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Nick, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm excited to talk to you today.
1: I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm most excited, one, because I just love talking to you. I have been on your podcast and we have been friends for a while, but two, we're going to talk about COVID, long haul COVID for patients. And uh, you have a lot of experience with this and I haven't had anybody on the podcast yet to talk about it, but yet I know... It's a super important topic. In fact, this morning, yesterday, I'd read on the CDC website, I think that the average person with long-haul COVID has like 16 or 17 symptoms. And then this morning, I read on a different site that there's 62 symptoms out there. And I thought, oh my gosh, perfect timing so we can walk through this for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a big problem. The latest research that I've read, it's getting close to about 40% of people who have had COVID. They have some kind of lingering symptom past six months. And it doesn't seem to matter how severe their case of COVID was, whether they were hospitalized or even just a mild case, they might end up with long COVID that lasts six months, 18 months. So that doesn't seem to matter either.
0: And I just... Some of my friends, uh, one of my best friends had a mild case of COVID and lost his smell and his still predominant taste and still is predominantly lost his taste and smell. He can, I think he said he can taste sweet. He can taste lemons. Like there's a few, just a tiny few things that he can actually really taste. And otherwise he said, it's pretty gross. And he just had a mild case so that fits perfectly. Well, actually, before we get started though, you, what People don't know who you are. So let's do a quick introduction of who you are, what you do, what your background is, what you stand for.
1: Yeah, well, I've been practicing functional medicine for 20 years, mostly focused on autoimmune disease and uh, thyroid Hashimoto's. That's been the bulk of my practice. I also have an online functional medicine education platform for practitioners called the Hedberg Institute. And so I've been training practitioners in functional medicine for about 10 years. And uh, I'm pretty much mostly research-based. I spend most of my time reading papers and trying to apply that clinically.
0: Which is what we're doing today. So for those who don't know, what is long-haul COVID?
1: Right. So there's various hypotheses actually about it, uh, what it is, what causes it, the different mechanisms. And um, they have the post-acute COVID, which is up to 12 weeks. And then they consider the long haul beyond 12 weeks. So they're trying to classify it. But there's overlaps with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis. But the main things that they're classifying are organ damage could be persistent viral antigen. So there's still viral RNA in the body. There's just a few studies on that regarding the lung and the gut. And then there's uh, ongoing inflammation, there's herpes virus reactivation like Epstein-Barr virus, herpes-6 cytomegalovirus. There's potential autoimmune mechanisms, there's immunometabolic abnormalities, uh, there's endothelial damage to the uh, microvasculature. And so those are the main components that they're talking about now in the literature as far as the pathophysiology.
0: And for the layperson who's listening, what are those signs and symptoms? How does that translate to somebody listening who's going, I don't know if I have long COVID, but I suspect it. Or I don't think I do, but oh my goodness, I actually have those symptoms.
1: Right. Yeah, fatigue is really the number one symptom across the board just ongoing fatigue. And then brain fog is another one, which is just inflammation of the brain. Pain tends to increase in these patients. So they'll have ongoing pain syndromes. They'll have Brain issues like uh, memory, inability to recall, impaired learning, things like that. And then they might have some cardiovascular issues because the heart's inflamed. So there might be some heart arrhythmias, POTS, which is just basically a problem with the heart from lying down to standing. Skin issues, autoimmunity, loss of muscle mass. There's like you said, there's many men over 60 symptoms now. People can have gut issues as well. It can manifest a thyroid, a menstrual cycle issues. So there's a lot there to unpack.
0: And it's important. I'm. This is not my area of expertise, but what is my area of expertise are in the hormone realm. And so what I'm seeing from that is that people are brushing some of these symptoms under the rug of oh, it's, quote, just my menopause, or it's, quote, just the stress I'm under right now, or something else that's happening in their life, when in fact, maybe they just don't realize that long-haul COVID syndrome could be a component of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, some people will just have one ongoing symptom for a long time. They might just be more tired for a year or longer. I mean, that's considered long COVID a lot of the women have their menstrual cycles have just completely flipped i've seen a lot of patients who have that completely changed and uh, sleep issues are also another big one some patients might just have ongoing sleep issues and they might just chalk it up to the daily stresses of life and things like that so it's definitely you know not something to overlook even if you just have one symptom that's ongoing
0: is there a test Like if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, I think I have long COVID, is there some sort of test they can do or is it basically signs and symptoms ever since they've had COVID?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's a little bit of controversy there because there are a few labs out there that are specifically running what are called long COVID panels. And these are mainly cytokine panels. And this is where the controversy comes in because cytokine testing is highly ambiguous and there's controversy about how accurate those results are.
0: Can you explain what a cytokine is?
1: Yeah, a cytokine is just a chemical made in the body by the immune system and so it just it's a way that the immune system communicates basically with itself within the body. And so that can a cytokine can drive inflammation, it can support the immune system, it can suppress the immune system, it can cause autoimmunity. And they're pretty much involved in all of the symptoms that people are feeling.
0: But yet the testing you were saying is on the controversial side.
1: It is. Yeah, it is somewhat controversial. The labs stand by their results, obviously. And then uh, there are scientists who are critical of these results, but they are finding particular patterns. So you will see, even on just conventional labs, looking at They're called CD4 and CD8 T-cells. Looking at the T-cells in the body, those are the lymphocytes. Those are definitely abnormal. Those are found in the literature to be abnormal in long COVID. So there's basically an immune exhaustion. The T-cells that fight viruses are just kind of being wiped out. They just tank and they don't really recover. But at the same time, some of them are producing inflammatory compounds So the immune system gets wiped out, but there's still inflammation driving consistently in the body.
0: Resulting in the ongoing symptoms, these long symptoms. Right. In your practice specifically, how often are you seeing long COVID? If you had to put a percentage to it, what would you guess?
1: A percentage of people who get COVID and then they develop long COVID?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, from what I'm seeing, it's somewhere around 20%. So when you look at the literature, they have a range somewhere around 18 to 40 percent, somewhere in there.
0: Do most people by now, just given the news and social media and whatnot, have an idea of long COVID? Or they come into you saying, I'm so tired and I don't think my brain's functioning. And you're the one who's having to point out. You realize that's been ever since you've been had COVID.
1: Yeah, I would say about half are aware. And then the other half, kind of a light bulb goes off. Like one example is you can get long COVID also from the vaccine, not just the virus. And so I have had a few patients get long COVID from the vaccine. And uh, I kind of put the pieces together there because one of them got shingles and that's actually a common, actually herpes reactivation, not just from the virus, but from the vaccine as well. So there is awareness for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually, I have a colleague She's a doctor on the East Coast. She got her first COVID shot and developed her, her and herpes came roaring back. And then I have another doctor who was on the front lines, got her COVID vaccine and developed POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So that was like right away, that was their thing. And the herpes resolved rather typically. The POTS took much, much long, months, months and months and months to finally start to improve. And that was just from the vaccine, not the actual infection
1: yeah, what the doctors that I know are finding and and what I'm seeing is that those who do get long covid from the vaccine, they do recover much more quickly than those who get long covid from the virus itself. And the main difference between the two is that the symptoms from the vaccine tend to be a little bit more neurological, and then the symptoms from the virus and long covid tend to be not just neurological but uh, the rest of the body.
0: do you tend to see? in your patient base, other underlying issues or genetics that you know about that might predispose someone to developing these symptoms, either post-vaccine or post-COVID infection?
1: Yeah, definitely. These are patients who, a lot of them, they have already had somewhat of a compromised immune system ongoing. They usually already dealt with an autoimmune condition or they've had chronic fatigue. Maybe not full-blown chronic fatigue, myalgic encephalomyelitis, but they might have just had ongoing fatigue for a long time. A lot of them have had gut issues. And then they tend to have high adverse childhood experiences scores. So a lot of childhood trauma. And the higher the ACE score, the higher the inflammatory cytokines. People just tend to be more inflamed as adults. And their immune systems tend to over-respond to things like infections and vaccines if they have a lot of adverse childhood experiences
0: and I think unfortunately that's really common right really common and and it doesn't get talked I was talking to another practitioner yesterday about adverse childhood events what we call aces and how it doesn't typically get talked about in the everyday medical visit maybe you talk about it with your therapist or your counselor or maybe you don't but if you go in if you're going in to talk about your fatigue or Your gut issues, your gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, your autoimmunity, it's not generally something your rheumatologist or endocrinologist or gastroenterologist is going to say, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about things like that. It's right to the symptom and let's snuff it out somehow. Right. This is really interesting. This is really interesting. And I think more data will probably come out as we get further and further in the years about this.
1: That's right. And also along those lines is uh, loneliness and social isolation. The, the metabolic and the immune effects, the hormonal effects of social isolation and feeling of loneliness is another thing that's drastically overlooked. And the consequences to the body are profound. And unfortunately, during the pandemic, there was increased feelings of loneliness due to social isolation. And so that also had a major impact on how the body was responding to the virus and the vaccine.
0: Which makes total sense to you and me. I mean, they've talked about loneliness and cardiovascular disease, right? Even just your risk for heart disease. We know that lack of community and feelings of loneliness right there increases risk, heart attack, stroke, et cetera. And in, through the pandemic, I had a number of people in my comments, in my DMs who repeatedly said that they were stuck at home, they lived alone, they'd lost their access to their community They weren't going to work. They weren't allowed to meet up with friends or family or travel. And it was taking a massive toll. Of course, at the time, they're thinking mental health. But as you and I know, it's a system-wide effect when you're lonely, when you're feeling lose your community and you're feeling lonely.
1: That's right. And there was even research previously on elderly who are lonely. The efficacy of the flu vaccine is significantly reduced if uh, they're lonely, So there's impacts there. And then also they found that the more lonely you are, the higher your Epstein-Barr virus titers go. And then they drop when your feelings of loneliness improve.
0: So actually, speaking of Epstein-Barr, one of the things I wanted to circle back to was chronic fatigue. Can you explain what chronic fatigue is to listeners, like some of the mechanisms behind it, Epstein-Barr, can you tie that together?
1: Yeah. So chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, it's a very complex disorder. And even in the literature, there isn't a consensus on what causes it. There's a lot of different theories, just like with long COVID. But essentially, patients are extremely fatigued. They have exercise intolerance. So maybe even just going for a walk around the neighborhood wipes them out for a day or two. And so there's major issues with their metabolism and their immune systems. And so there's different kind of theories like the mitochondria. These are the parts of the cell that make energy. So they found that these particular patients have issues with the mitochondria. And then some of them have uh, herpes virus reactivations like you just mentioned, Epstein bars, cytomegalovirus, herpes 6. So that's another aspect. And then also the microcirculation which is uh, damaged by COVID, but also there are circulation issues, especially in the brain, people with chronic fatigue. And so it's really difficult to treat and to understand, but it's getting a lot more focused now because of long COVID.
0: It's interesting when I've been in, I'm not quite 20 years, I'm 17 years out in practice, but I remember years ago, you'd bring up chronic fatigue and just the eye rolls in conventional medicine, like that doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Epstein-Barr causes mono, but like nothing beyond that. Herpes 6, nobody cares about it. And now when you search, in fact, just yesterday, I think on the CDC website, even, I mean, they had a whole section about chronic fatigue and ME and and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't like this from... That COVID had to bring it about, but I do like that it's finally getting a lot more recognition for people who got blown off for years.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So there's more and more papers coming out on it, it recently. And a lot of those papers, they mentioned chronic fatigue and long COVID in the same light because there's so many similarities there. And um, if you look at the, the immune profiles of these patients, um, they look very similar. So the whether it's the vaccine or the virus itself, there's no doubt at this point that that can trigger a, a chronic fatigue syndrome like a presentation.
0: If somebody did nothing about it, not a thing of their long COVID symptoms, would they fully recover? Or is it at this point, do we just not know?
1: Yeah, I mean, some people fully recover, not doing anything for certain. The problem is that the papers that have just come out recently on this is that even the people who are recovered, they're seeing 12 months later, they still have compromised immune function. And so some of the hypotheses are that we're going to see increased rates of cancer because their innate immunity has been wiped out for so long. And you have to have that to gobble up malignant cells, cells that are beginning to turn into cancer cells. So, that's a potential issue. So, even those who have recovered, we may see some ongoing issues there later on.
0: Or even, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you, even if you feel better and recovered, if your immune system is still struggling, not only cancer, which is potentially a worse case, but you're even just more at risk for other infections, correct? Getting sick from other things because you just don't have the defenses like you used to.
1: That's right. And they, yeah, and they do mention that in the papers more likely to get the flu and have a difficult case. And then they also mentioned HIV. So people who already have that, even though we have really good HIV drugs, they talk about those patients potentially having some long-term issues because of the compromised immune system.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So treatment, what are you seeing conventionally? What is like sort of the conventional traditional treatment if you walked into an urgent care or you saw your Primary cares are they doing? Is there anything out there? Are they doing anything?
1: No, I mean they're not really (laughs) doing anything. Conventional (sighs) approach to long COVID: rest, drink some extra water, just things that aren't really going to do a whole lot, unfortunately.
0: Okay, so that's a bummer. (laughs) Damn it! But now they come to see you. These are the patients that are in your practice. First of all, they come in; they're presenting with symptoms. What are some of your what go to tests that you start with? Obviously this is everybody's different. There's 60 plus symptoms. I mean, workups going to be different. But if somebody's listening to this going, "Crap, that's me. I'm having some of these symptoms. I went to the urgent care who said rest, drink water, Good look. give it 12 months. What are some things you do for workup?"
1: Yeah. So I'm only doing two tests. Oh, easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't really need more than that. So you do and when I say two, I mean I do a full comprehensive uh, blood panel. Traditional through lab core looking at thyroid and iron.
0: Now let me, I gotta stop you there though. When you say thyroid, you don't just mean TSH.
1: Right. Yeah. Free T4 and Free T three, because they are finding low T3 syndromes in these patients. And then um iron, lipids, liver kidneys, CBC, all that stuff. And then I might just add in a few other things, like I might just want to see if they're Epstein Barr virus. Titers are high, so I'll look at that. And then they do do, I do do one panel. It's called a it T and B lymphocyte natural killer cell panel, which gives me those numbers on the CD4, CD8 T cells, natural killer cells. I just like to see if those are still compromised, uh, wiped out. And then the other one is just a really good uh, stool analysis because there are a few papers out now showing that these patients have gut dysbiosis and they tend to have elevated. Pathogenic bacteria and then lower beneficial bacteria, especially bifidobacter, is found to be wiped out in these patients. And then I just want to see if they have other pathogens that are compromising their immune system and driving inflammation. But that's basically it. I don't do more than that.
0: No, that's great. And so the blood test, what I love that you said is it's just conventional lab core quest, your hospital, whatever you do or your doctor does for blood draws, it's not fancy. It doesn't require specialty testing, so to speak, that we're familiar with. However, the stool test, I do want to clarify, you're not just talking about an OVA and Parasite that you would send to something like LabCorp. You're talking about something much more in-depth and specialty.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like the GI map from uh, Diagnostic Solutions, and that gives us a really good view of all the bacteria, H. pylori, parasites, fungi, viruses. And then just the intestinal health. So I can see the strength of the digestion and the immune system in the gut. So, yeah, it's a combination of uh, like a functional view of the gut and then also a pathogenic view looking for infections.
0: And patients, sir, in my experience, I have to hype them up for it because I'm like, you get to poop in a cup for science. <laughs> Still testing <laughs> is exactly what you think it is. And there are, I do want to shout out, there are other. Labs, because maybe your practitioner uses somebody different. So there's companies, there's a company called Genova, and they run a GI effects. There's a company called Doctors Data. They run the GI 360. There's a company called Microbiome. They run Biome Effects. So there are other great in-depth stool analysis companies out there. But GI Map is a really popular one by Diagnostic Solutions. Right. Can you talk about the immune system in the gut? I think people forget it's pretty heavy down there.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the bulk of the immune system, depending on what you read, 60 to 80% of the immune systems in the gut. And it's going to intimately regulate what's going on in the brain and a lot of patients have brain issues and then there's connections there with the gut and the rest of the body, the mood, depression, anxiety, energy levels. It's one of those things where no matter what you're talking about, what condition you're talking about, you can always talk about the gut will be connected to it in some way or another.
0: Which in that gut, what we call the gut-brain axis, I'm so excited that it's getting so much press in the literature because, in fact, I had Dr. Robert Hadea on the podcast and we were talking about how patients, depression, anxiety, brain fog, worsening, bipolar, etc., and gut, how it can connect to the gut. We would think it's so far away that he makes the joke. He says the head is connected to the rest of the body by this thing called the neck. And then, of course, we go deeper and mean the vagus nerve. And can you explain that gut-brain excess and how somebody might look at you crazy and go, what, I brain fog. Why do you care about my gut health?
1: Right. Yeah, so, you know, there's something called leaky gut, and that drives inflammation in the rest of the body and the brain. And the bacteria in the gut regulate our adrenaline neurotransmitters, their connections there. And the bacteria in the gut, depending on what you're eating and the health of your gut, they produce a compound called lipopolysaccharides. And those are highly inflammatory and that can cause the symptoms of brain fog and memory loss and mood disturbances and things like that. And the vagus nerve, that's kind of a big topic, so we could talk about that in a bit.
0: Which actually, okay, so we move into, now that you've done testing on them, let's talk treatment. Let's talk treatment. What are you discussing with your patients?
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you what I've found. I've got a, a good base protocol put together, and we always want to do the least expensive, most effective things that aren't going to overwhelm people. But the, one of the things that most effective is uh, intermittent fasting. And so fasting is going to help to metabolize problematic cells. I think is the best way to put it. And so we'll do usually, we have the first meal anywhere from 10 to 12 a.m. And then there's usually about an eight to ten hour feeding window. So they might just eat a uh, lunch and uh, dinner, or they might have lunch and then maybe like a protein shake in the middle of the afternoon and then dinner. And so fasting actually helps a lot. And then some people will just do better with different fasting regimens. Like they might eat breakfast, but then they might not eat again until dinner and things like that. So that's a, a long window where the body is fasting and that helps to bring down the inflammation. And that that seems to be working really well for these patients. So as far as diet goes, we do the fasting and then we look at, The diet for potential food sensitivities, anything that drives inflammation. And so we'll usually just start with gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. we just do those three for the first month, plus the fasting, and you're going to get really good results bringing inflammation down. And then there's significant overlap with uh, mast cell activation and histamine. And a lot of people are on low histamine diets with long COVID getting good results. So we'll also do a review of their diet and see if they're eating a lot of histaminic foods and bring those down in the diet. And that that helps quite a bit.
0: Can you give us some examples of histaminic foods just for people to understand?
1: Yeah. Well, the gluten-containing grains are histaminic and so are dairy. Those are histaminic. And then it varies within the fruits and vegetables. Like avocados are actually histaminic, even though they're seen as a health food. Tomatoes are histaminic. Some people eat a lot of berries, not knowing that raspberries and strawberries are histaminic, but blueberries and blackberries aren't. Fermented foods are actually histaminic. So kimchi, sauerkraut, pickles, things like that, those can be histaminic. And then things like packaged processed foods tend to be more histaminic. So there's a I have a whole histamine diet put together for patients.
0: What about alcohol?
1: Yeah, alcohol. So cider, wine, beer, those are all histaminic. Distilled spirits not as much, but alcohol by itself is going to be histaminic.
0: And in general probably just not great for your immune system and recovery.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. Mhm.
0: Okay. All right, so we have intermittent fasting, we have reducing inflammation through diet. Is do you have other parts of your sort of your baseline that you talk to people about?
1: Yeah, I mean, other than diet, one of the big things is vagus nerve stimulation. So there are a number of papers now out on how COVID affects the vagus nerve. It actually gets into the brainstem into the dorsal motor vagal nucleus and disrupts vagal motor outflow. And so the basically the vagus nerve is a big anti-inflammatory nerve. So a lot of people think of it as like a calming nerve, but it's really not. It is important for digestion, but it inhibits inflammation and then it increases acetylcholine, which is a compound that really helps with uh, the brain fog and the memory issues and energy and things like that. And so the vagus nerve stimulation... I give patients a handout. It just tells them you can do like singing, humming, gargling with water, walking in nature, yoga, tai chi, meditation. Those all kind of stimulate the vagus nerve. And then there's various electrical devices that can be used. You can use a TENS unit with an ear clip on the left ear and that stimulates the vagus. And then more recently, I've been using this. It's called a gamma core.
0: Yeah, I just learned about that.
1: Yeah, it stimulates the vagus nerve chain on both sides of the neck, and it gives a more robust uh, stimulation of the vagus nerve. And so that's another big thing we get them doing is vagus nerve activation stimulation.
0: Can you just explain briefly like why does humming, gargling, singing, why do these things help the vagus nerve?
1: Well, it's because of the vicinity, the vagus nerve in that area of the throat, singing, humming, gargling that activates the vagus, just really anything pleasurable. I mean, even just eating stimulates the vagus nerve, sexual intercourse, masturbation stimulates the vagus nerve, pretty much anything pleasurable.
0: And I've even read, I don't know, I don't know that I've read papers on this, but I feel like I've read it in books, circling back to loneliness, not lack of community, but being in community, like feeling safe, having a good time, laughing, real laughing with your community. Do you? Would you also include something like that?
1: Yeah, I do. That's part of the loneliness discussion because a lot of these patients tend to be a little bit more isolated. So we, I just talk to them about, even if it's just one friend, try and get out, go have lunch or dinner. Are there any groups that you like that you could join where you can do fun things together, hiking groups, whatever the person is interested in? But yeah, they need to be around people because... The more people you're around, the stronger the safety signal to the body. And the safer you feel, the more the vagus nerve is activated in a healthy way.
0: Yeah. All right. So we have the foods, we have the vagus nerve, we're reducing inflammation. Do you ever add in supplements or nutrients?
1: Yeah. So, you know, normally I always try to be as minimal as possible with supplementation. But the fact of the matter is, with chronic fatigue syndrome patients or long COVID patients, they're going to be on a lot of supplements. It's just necessary because it's such a complex issue. So, some of the big things are going to be probiotics because of the research that shows these patients have dysbiosis. And probiotics are just so good at restoring immune function. And these patients have abnormal immune function. So, use a probiotic. And then we want them on something that's going to increase muscle mass. And this is something that I think a lot of people are overlooking in their protocols, but there's a lot of literature out on sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass in long COVID because they get COVID and then they're not exercising and then they get sick and they stay sick and they're so tired they can't exercise. And if you lose muscle mass, you become more inflamed And you become more insulin resistant because muscle is really an organ in and of itself. It's one of our best anti-inflammatories. And so we'll use an amino acid powder to avoid any potential allergens to like whey, pea, rice, anything like that. And the amino acids have been shown to increase lean muscle mass without even exercising. And so this is another really important supplement that I'll use. And then there's kind of a big list. We can work our way through them. Some of the obvious things like vitamin D are going to be important. And then there's a study on, there is one study out now on adrenal adaptogens and long COVID. Yay. And they found that the combination of schisandra, Rhodiola, and Eleuthero was effective at improving long COVID symptoms. So those three work quite well. Adaptogens basically they improve the body's resilience to stress and they also help to restore immune system function. So they're going to help people with energy and mood and their brain function and their immune system and things like that. So there's more we can go through.
0: (laughs) Well, and actually, so my only hesitation is that, as you know, people will write down the list and then they will just run. Yeah, they will just run to the online or the big box stores and buy whatever they see because understandably, they're desperate and they don't feel good. So let's do it by category. Do you, We talked about you adaptogens. Do you, Antioxidants? Do you use antioxidants?
1: Yeah, definitely antioxidants. Some of those also uh, reduce histamine. They're effective for mast cell activation. So antioxidants are definitely important. You want to improve glutathione levels, so there was a paper recently on... It's the first genetic study on people with long COVID. And they found that those with long COVID compared to controls, they do have higher rates of glutathione SNPs, glutathione transferase and peroxidase. And they actually already knew that people who have severe COVID, the disease itself, had do have lower glutathione levels. And this study confirmed a genetic connection with lower glutathione. So anything you can do to boost glutathione is really important.
0: Can you explain for those who don't know what glutathione is?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really the body's, I guess you could say it's the body's most important antioxidant. So it's everywhere, it's in every cell, it reduces inflammation, it helps to restore immune system function, and it's important for detoxification and it's important for the gut and the brain. I mean, kind of everything and um, there are you can just take glutathione, and there's also various supplements that improve glutathione levels.
0: Yeah. What about melatonin? Melatonin's my favorite antioxidant, mostly because melatonin is so old; it's billions of years old. So I'm always like, "She's a queen. She's seen a lot of things."
1: <laughs> right. I have that on my list here. Melatonin, as you said, it's a great antioxidant. So these patients have impaired innate immunity, and melatonin helps innate immunity. And then also a lot of people don't know that melatonin is a good antihistamine in the brain. And so with these patients who have these mast cell activation-like symptoms, melatonin is going to be perfect for that. And they tend to have sleep issues. So it's going to be helpful for that as well.
0: I did not know that melatonin had antihistamine properties in the brain. That's fascinating. Okay. And I'm assuming another category besides probiotics is likely gut if you've come across pathogens or right. bad bacteria, so to speak?
1: Yes, yeah, so mostly using uh, probiotics for the gut. And a lot of them have, like I said, they have low bifidobacter. So I will mention one, another supplement. So Slippery Elm is a great herb to improve bifidobacter levels. And some people with who take prebiotics, they have problems. They get a lot of gas, cramping, bloating, things like that. Slippery elm, as long as it's in a low enough dose, doesn't tend to cause that like other prebiotics. And it also helps to heal the gut. So that's another um, gut one I'll use. And I mean, if they do have pathogens, we'll use some herbal antimicrobials and then uh, other compounds to help heal the gut barrier.
0: And then as another category, we I mean, we keep talking about it, but histamine, do you have a specific, if that seems pretty clear in the person in front of you? Are you looking at specific antihistamine support?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the low histamine diet is actually going to be the most effective for that. But um, flavonoids and flavanols help to uh, reduce histamine. So the combination of vitamin C and quercetin is a good basic supplement stack for high histamine levels. And there are a few more than that, but those that's a good start.
0: And vitamin C being also, as we know, a great antioxidant. It's important for our adrenal glands, so stress response. And it helps glutathione recycle so it can do its thing. So vitamin C. And I talk about this a lot. It still blows my mind. Humans cannot make their own vitamin C. If you look up online about vitamin C, they always quote this goat study that just cracks me up that researchers got funding to study stressed out goats. God bless them. And realize when goats get stressed out, they make their vitamin C production goes up exponentially to help combat that. And I thought, how come goats have that, but humans don't? We could really use that right now. It, That's right. We need to bring that back.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I can give a few just things in the kitchen that people can use to reduce histamine and improve their symptoms. So one thing I have most people do is drink ginger tea. And so you just take a thumb-sized portion of fresh ginger grate it, and then steep it for 10 minutes with boiling water. And um, ginger is a good antihistamine. It's a good anti-inflammatory. And it's good for the microcirculation, which is damaged by the virus. And the microcirculation is another big one that we need to talk about as far as supplements and strategies, because the blood vessels are damaged by this virus. So I do the ginger, and then garlic, just like a half to one clove a day, crush it, mince it, let it sit for at least 10 minutes to activate the allicin, the the health benefits. And so consuming garlic is also going to be very helpful.
0: Can you cook that or do you recommend raw?
1: Yeah, cook it, cook it. Okay. Yeah.
0: People are thinking, oh no. Don't eat it raw.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cook it up.
0: Okay, and then let's get into the microcirculation. What do you mean by microcirculation for people?
1: Yeah, so microcirculation is basically all the small blood vessels that go to every organ in the entire body. I mean, it's everywhere. And so any kind of chronic illness, whether it's long COVID or anything, needs uh, microcirculation support. So I'll go through my list here of things that uh, people can do to improve microcirculation. So number one, increased consumption of green leafy vegetables. And then number two, 20 grams a day of dark chocolate.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor's orders.
1: So you want to look for about 85 to 92% cacao.
0: That's my favorite.
1: And a couple of caveats. Number one, chocolate is histaminic. So not everyone's going to be able to tolerate it and then it does have caffeine in it. So if histamine is a problem and caffeine is a problem, then you want to avoid the dark chocolate. But if you can tolerate it, it's really good. Cocoa dark chocolate is actually very effective in chronic fatigue syndrome and also microcirculation issues.
0: You know people listening are going, I don't care if I can't tolerate it. I'm having, he said, 20 grams of dark chocolate. Yeah. (laughs)
1: It's therapeutic. Right. The next one is increased consumption of like blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, raspberries. Use more herbs and spices like turmeric and ginger. We talked about the ginger tea. And then uh, drink three to four cups a day of green tea. This can be caffeinated or decaffeinated. This has compounds in it that are really good for the microcirculation. And then uh, beetroot juice or a beetroot uh, supplement, like about 200 milliliters a day of beetroot juice really helps to open up the blood vessels, it increases nitric oxide, uh, which is really important for these patients, for the brain and the inflammation and the immune system.
0: Be- and be- beets, nitric oxide is also, I've noticed.
1: Yeah, or just eat beets. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, well, it's gotten a lot of pre- a lot of literature lately. I'm seeing more and more on nitric oxide, the importance of improving our nitric oxide. So that's cool.
1: Yeah. So everything I just mentioned is going to support the nitric oxide pathways on the microcirculation And then there's a number of herbs and supplements that also do it, but those are things that you can do without supplements.
0: Okay, which is great for a lot of people. Obviously, budget's very important, or they've been struggling with this for a while, and it has affected their job or their partner's job. And so budget is a concern if they can find it just in the grocery store or in their kitchen and DIY it that way to feel better. I'm a bit huge fan. I think that's wonderful if they can avoid the foods that are going to flare the histamine but eat the foods that are going to prove nitric oxide and greens and support the gut buy ginger is very cheap ginger root is very cheap in the store buying ginger and and actually I do want to say this point ginger root tea that you make yourself as opposed to somebody who says oh I just I have tea bags of ginger root it's not quite the same <laughs> yeah you think it is it's not the same
1: not going to be the same that's right yeah
0: go buy that root grate it up or Chop it small and boiling water. Okay. All right. Before we wrap up, did I miss any big categories that you have on your list people need to know about?
1: No. I mean, as far as how we approach it, I think we covered pretty much everything. I guess the only two other things I would mention would be iron and the mitochondria.
0: Oh, yeah, of course.
1: A lot of these patients, their ferritin, their iron stores have dropped in long COVID. And so...
0: Which makes sense if you're constantly fighting something. Well, one, it could be anemia of chronic disease, right? And two, if you're fighting something there's in the body, the things, like if you have bad pathogens, they can use iron themselves. They can t- swipe it from you.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Exactly. Initially, their ferritin will skyrocket, which is a sign of inflammation, but then it will tank over time. And if you have low ferritin, low iron stores, your metabolism is going to struggle, Your immune system is going to struggle. You're just not going to feel as good. So you want to talk to your doctor about getting your iron checked. And uh, taking vitamin C is going to improve iron levels. But then you can just eat more iron-rich foods like bison and grass-fed beef and lamb and dark meats. All of those are going to have the most bioavailable form of iron.
0: Amazing. Okay. And then mitochondria.
1: Yeah. So the mitochondria, these are the energy producing parts of the cells. And the fasting is really going to help mitochondria. And then your diet, which should be the obvious, staying off of processed carbohydrates, sugar, things like that. That's very stressful to the mitochondria. And there are, you know, a number of supplements that support mitochondrial health. Some of them we already talked about. Even just supporting glutathione is going to be helpful for the mitochondria. The adrenal adaptogens will be helpful for the mitochondria. Medicinal mushrooms can be helpful for the mitochondria, but that's another thing to be aware of and talk to your doctor about.
0: And can you explain medicinal mushrooms so they don't necessarily think you're talking about hallucinogenics?
1: Yeah, so basically uh, like cordyceps and reishi and uh, shiitake turkey tail, maitake, all those are uh, some of the lion's mane. Those are some of the big medicinal mushrooms. And these help to balance the immune system and restore the immune system. And they support the mitochondria, anti-inflammatory. They help glutathione, They're antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. And so that would be a good thing to talk to your doctor about supplementing with
0: and I want to, since we've been talking about supplements a lot, I do want to make the plug quality counts. If you're buying mushrooms, like if you see at a store, you're like, oh, look at this, medicinal mushrooms, there's all the things that Dr. Nick said, but it's fly by night, it's covered in mold. You just don't realize it. It's the same for tea. If you're buying the cheapest green tea in these plastic little bags, tea bags, just know you're probably, you don't know that that's green tea. It's likely covered in mold and sprays and herbicides and whatnot, and the plastic tea bag that you've just put in boiling water is now leaching out microplastics. So do the best you can, but do know that quality counts. And the cheapest, while it might fit in your budget, it may actually end up hurting your health. And we don't want that.
1: Yes. That's a really good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you've made excellent discussion today on the different topics and supplements and categories and things. And so if people are and should take their health into their own hands for a lot of it in talking with their practitioner or researching it themselves but i also just don't want them buying buying crap because then you'll just get crap and feel like crap so let's not do that
1: yeah very good point <laughs> there are the studies on over the counter supplements do show that these are highly variable in their content some of them don't have anything at all in the capsule and then some of them have excessive levels beyond what is healthy so make sure you're buying good quality
0: yeah agreed All right. So given that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, we've been talking about long COVID, you've made several, several, several amazing just suggestions, literature points, clinical pearls, but give us your top two or three things you want to close this out with and have people remember.
1: Right. Yes. Top two or three things is number one, I would say the social aspect of getting well, I think is actually going to be very important. Like I said, even if it's just one friend, you can spend regular time with. Getting out of the house, walking in nature, being around healthy people, being around people you like that are healthy and supportive. If you need to, counseling is going to be really important. So that would be definitely a top one. And then the second one would be, I would say the the fasting that we talked about is really going to help a lot. So figure out what works for you as far as an intermittent fasting schedule. And then number three, I would say the vagus nerve stuff we talked about. All those things you can do that are pleasurable. The vagus nerve, no doubt, is one of the major impacted parts of this uh, long COVID. Anything you can do to stimulate the vagus nerve will give you big results.
0: So after listening to this, everybody needs to be, go gargle water, go hum, go sing your favorite song, belt it out. (laughs) Right be with your community. I love this. Dr. Nick and his amazing podcast voice. Where can people find you? Where can they learn more from you? Where can they listen to your podcast?
1: Yeah. So my practice website is drheadberg.com, drheadberg.com. And uh, the podcast is called Functional Medicine Research. It is geared mainly towards practitioners And then the uh, Hedberg Institute is HedbergInstitute.com. And that's the online functional medicine training platform for practitioners. And if there are any practitioners listening, you can go to HedbergInstitute.com and click on the webinars course. And I made a coupon code. It's Carrie Jones. And so if you use the coupon code Carrie Jones, you get that webinars course for free. And that's a monthly webinar series I do on a lot of different topics that would be helpful like long COVID, Epstein-Barr, things like that.
0: That's amazing. And to make sure everybody spells it right, it's (laughs) H-E-D-B-E-R-G. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's correct. H-E-D-B-E-R-G. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on today. I always enjoy talking with you and I think everyone listening has just learned so much more about long COVID that they're not finding maybe from their acute care walk-in clinics or their their primary care. So I think you've made a world of difference for a lot of us. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Carrie, for having me on. I appreciate it. I always really love talking to you.
0: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.